following recording is from the second Sunday of Advent at Van City Church from the series, The Long Winter Breaks. On Monday evening, Abby, my wife Abby and I were making dinner together and we saw a couple of minutes of the local news. I'm not one for the news myself, but I don't mind the local news from time to time because it's mostly about like the local bagel shop or a cat in a tree or something like that. And uh, this bit on the local news happened to be one of those inspirational Christmas bits. And it had the, you know, the stock rise and fall cadence with which every news journalist is, for whatever reason, required to speak. I don't know if this is part of journalism school or why no one wants to break the mold. But stock voice aside, it seems that the story was a week before Thanksgiving, a fellow whose identity remains unknown, pulled into a gas station in Astoria. Now, for our podcast listeners elsewhere in the world, Oregonian gas stations employ attendants to pump the customer's gas. You can't pump your own gas in Oregon. So on this particular morning, a week before Thanksgiving, this anonymous gentleman strikes up a conversation with his gas station attendant. Now, over the course of said conversation, exchanging pleasantries, how are you holding up in this weird year we're having? The attendant mentioned working at the station in order to eventually save up enough money to purchase a cheap old car because he didn't have one at the time. Their exchange concluded. The customer thanked the attendant and he was on his way. The customer then drove to a nearby Kia dealership where he proceeded to purchase a car for this gas station attendant that he didn't know, couldn't even remember the guy's name. And according to the Kia salesperson, the stranger could barely remember any details. He's like, oh, I think he was about this tall. I can't remember exactly his name. He's back that way. He set up a whole thing. The stranger insisted on remaining completely anonymous. And though the story circulated via news outlets, obviously, after the fact, no one knows who this dude is. They were wearing masks, so the attendant can't even properly describe the fellow. Now, I told Abby, as we watched this story, I said something like, now there's that one in 100 person that probably should be rich because they are willing to, on a whim, distribute reckless, radical, unqualified generosity. And the next day, I thought about the story again, and I suddenly wondered to myself, I remembered what I said to my wife, and I wondered, why did I assume that the stranger was rich? What if buying this stranger a car cost this other stranger a great deal? Maybe his whole Christmas. Here's another story. On Tuesday afternoon, this is the next day, I drove to Fred Meyer to pick up a couple of grocery items. And I pulled into the lot and I noticed a disheveled man who was, I could tell through my car window, talking loudly to himself and to people passing by from where he sat, squatting on the sidewalk just outside the store's entrance. And I felt a slight sense of being inconvenienced, very slight, but I, was, I felt it nonetheless, uh, knowing I was in a hurry 
and knowing in all likelihood I was about to have a conversation with this guy. So sure enough, as I approached, he called out to me, hey, you, 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 hey, sir, can you help me? So I stopped and raised my eyebrows above my mask and a gesture that kind of said, yeah, what is it? I'm listening. And he asked, to my surprise, can you get me a bottle of Mountain Dew? And I said, oh, just a bottle of Mountain Dew? He said, yep, a red one or a green one, either one is fine. So I said, yeah, okay, sure, I'll get you a bottle of Mountain Dew. And he said, thanks, I'll be right here when you come back. And I stepped into the store with a sense of relief all of a sudden. Not only was the exchange painless, but now I was feeling pretty good about myself, satisfied with my own benevolence. So I got what I needed from the store, then I went and got this guy's Mountain Dew. But then another embarrassing train of thought ran through my mind as I realized that I was slightly embarrassed to be carrying around this Mountain Dew and Fred Meyer. And in the two or three minutes it took to take this bottle from the aisle to the self-checkout, I was actually having this inner dialogue, disappointed with myself, kind of ashamed. Why in the world should I be embarrassed about such a thing? What was wrong with me? Is there really this much pretense in my heart, this much arrogance and shamefulness? And then come to think of it, why should I be embarrassed about anything that happens in Fred Meyer? Really, I don't know anyone. I'm behind a mask. It's just an inconsequential part of mine and everyone else's day. No one cares that I'm here. So by the time I've completed checkout, I've resolved this ridiculous moment of embarrassment. And aside from a lingering sense of new disappointment in myself for being embarrassed in the first place, the discomfort is over. I'm back to feeling good. I step outside with my self, sense of self-satisfaction returning, eager to hand over the drink, and I discover that the guy is gone. I look around, nothing. I don't know where he went. Oh well, I thought, no big deal. But if I'm honest, there was a new small sense of disappointment. And yeah, I thought it would have been nice to grant this dude's simple request for a Mountain Dew. But I realized I wanted to feel good about doing it. I do this kind of thing sometimes at Christmas, embracing small gestures of generosity beyond the ordinary rhythms of giving because it's Christmas. So Abby and I, we participate in toy drives or I'll put cash in the red buckets of the bell ringers. And watching this news clip about a stranger who bought another stranger a car, I told Abby, we should do something like that. And she looked at me terrified for a moment and I clarified my intentions. Well, you know, like relative to our modest income because it's Christmas time. And she agreed, listing ideas as we went about preparing this hot meal for our family and the warm, cozy comfort of our own home. And I thought about that. I thought about this guy on the news and I started realizing this week that Christmas highlights a paradox in my personality. Now, ordinarily, I have no trouble whatsoever giving serious consideration to the world's brokenness. I'm wired with a kind of morbid fascination that compels me to think deeply about dark things. I don't like dark things. I don't even like thinking about them per se. But I want to understand the world's darkness to process it in some way. And Advent, down throughout church history, has been a time to confront the darkness. This is lost on many a modern evangelical tradition, but historically, Advent begins in the dark. For centuries, disciples of Jesus across all kinds of denominations and traditions have observed Advent by staring deep into the heart of darkness and evil, that we might be 
truly scandalized and brokenhearted by the incomprehensible goodness of a God who would come to us in the vulnerability of human infancy and who will come again in the power of judgment and renewal. So Advent should be a breeze for me. Think about dark things, stare into the darkness. But the catch is that I love Christmas. I've loved Christmas my whole life, everything about it. I find it nearly impossible to avoid the joy of the season. Abby and I have always made much of Christmas, even when it was just the two of us. And all of these years later with two small kids, the season is so magical that I can scarcely overstate how much it means to me. And every year, I read Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol around this time of year, and every year I have a lump in my throat when I read the words of Scrooge's nephew when he visits his cold uncle's counting house on Christmas Eve. He says to him, I've always thought of Christmas time as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. I've actually read this passage on several Christmas gatherings at Van City over the years. And it's not wrong. There is and should be a unique spirit of radical self-sacrificial generosity that settles over us during the sacred season of Christmas when our hearts try and fail to comprehend the generosity of God in the gift of his son Jesus. But the message of Advent is in the reality-altering awareness that Jesus arrived in Bethlehem to rescue us and that he will come again. Now my problem is in my sentimentalizing something beautiful in the past and bringing that ancient event to bear on the present, informing me here, while then neglecting to reach forward into the future for the other side of Advent that changes all of life long after the lights and ornaments go back to the garage. That's why pastor and theologian Fleming Rutledge argues that John the Baptist is one of the central figures of Advent. But who wants to make room for this nut bar at Christmas time? He's out eating grasshoppers and screaming about how the axe is at the root of the trees. And if you don't bear fruit, then by God, you are coming down. John the Baptist epitomizes Advent because his great life's work was to prepare the way for the arrival or the advent of the Messiah. And he did. Advent was John's life work. A sweet, vulnerable baby Jesus born to poor teenagers, is heartwarming at Christmas time for good reason. It's a beautiful story. How could the all-powerful creator God so empty himself as to become something so helpless? It's incredible. It's beautiful. And even though John the Baptist prepares the way for a then-grown but still obscure peasant stonemason turned self-taught rabbi, he doesn't sound like a man who's introducing a nobody. Jesus of Nazareth was a, no, a nobody in the ancient world, but John sounds like a prophet of doom in bold proclamation of a coming king. The axe is at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. 
John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Considering this, Fleming Rutledge writes, the characteristic liturgical petition of Advent is Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. It is certainly not a prayer for Jesus to come again as a helpless baby. It is the longing cry of God's people for him to return in power and glory when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This image is less sweet and sentimental and quite frankly, more terrifying. And noting the terrifying power of this image, she goes on to make a crucial point. She writes, the image of Jesus as the cosmic judge who will ultimately come again to put an end to all sin and wickedness forever is not so frightening to the poor and oppressed of the earth as it is to those who have a lot to lose. In the comfortable warmth of my home, festooned with green garlands and twinkling lights, I spend a moment or two turning over a few Christmas generosity projects that will certainly make me feel very good. I've got a Compassion International catalog. I can buy school supplies and a goat for poor children in Kenya. Maybe, I thought, I will leave a very big tip for someone. Or maybe I will put a large bill in the red bucket of a bell ringer. And if and when I do, these things will be painless. Numbers change in my bank account. This theoretical digital currency that never really moves around. Numbers change, I guess. Or I'll spend a few minutes clicking through a, a form online. Or I'll pause to greet a bell ringer. And really, I can do all this with the idea of salvation at hand that we remember at Advent almost entirely lost on me. The earliest disciples, the ones who saw Jesus raised, they beheld the miracles, they gave themselves over to death for the sake of Jesus and the kingdom. They believed 2,000 plus years ago that Jesus' arrival was imminent. Back then, they thought he would return in power any minute now. Now today, the renewal of all things sounds almost hypothetical. Really, I have things to do and I'd prefer the time and space to get them done. I hear... The word became flesh, and I think, that's very nice. But if your life has been prison, then knowing someone is coming to rescue you, this is everything. What hope is there then for those of us who are quite comfortable? What hope is there that we can be changed by Advent this Christmas season? Again, Rutledge writes, preparing the way for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to be easy for you and me. It means laying ourselves open to God's great leveling operation. It means relinquishing our most cherished strategies and defenses. It means living every day in anticipation of God's work of cutting and filling. It means being ready at all times to relinquish one's own special privileges in the world on behalf of those who might be very different from oneself. 
I don't need to tell you how hard this is for us. We don't like admitting that we need radical surgery. The New Testament word for this is repentance. It doesn't just mean being sorry. It means a change of life. In Advent, we stare down the ugliness of a broken world and we follow in the example of our teacher and king by stepping into that broken story as a light in the darkness that the long winter would break. The true beauty of Christmas is that though this timeless story of a poor teenage virgin so moves us, who brought forth the king of the universe in obscurity, in the squalor of poverty, that story does not exist in a vacuum. That this teenage girl who fanned flies away from the crying, blood-streaked face of the word made flesh, she cradled and nursed the cosmic judge who will come to crush the snake, destroy evil, and make everything new. And we sit in the warm, comfortable haze of the in-between, so far from that night amongst the livestock and the manure and the sacred manger that all of it has become a sentimental lawn decoration. So far from the New Testament cries of coming salvation that they fail to penetrate the protective dome of our privacy and privilege. And yet, those cries for salvation continue to ring out through the ages. The kingdom of God is at hand. Your redemption is drawing near. Or how about this one? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. For the very comfortable, judgment terrifies. But for the suffering, the oppressed, the weary, for those anxious for the renewal of all things, the Christmas acts at the root of the tree cannot come soon enough. And the God willing to come to us in the manger is the God worthy to return in the power of judgment. When John the Baptist was born, his father Zechariah erupted in beautiful theological poetry and Luke tells us he was filled with the Holy Spirit when he said, you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. From what we can tell, Zechariah like just about everybody, had no idea the kind of Messiah Jesus would actually turn out to be. And yet, in his ancient Jewish understanding of the anointed one who comes to judge, the father of the prophet who proclaimed the axe at the root of the trees, saw in God not fearsome, vengeful wrath, but the forgiveness of sins through the tender mercy of God. Just as the holy infant was tender, so was the great love of the coming king. And those of us in the in-between, we can be changed by the past reality of God in the manger just as we can learn to live informed by the reality that he will come again. More than a temporary stir of generosity at Christmas, but an entire life 
turned upside down because of what happened in Bethlehem and because of what will happen on a day in the future when he returns. A change of life born not from fear of a terrifying judge, but by the tender mercy of God. It's funny, my kids, they won't grow up with the rapture or with kooky left behind theology. So unlike my wife and I who were, you know, traumatized and terrified of Jesus returning, my kids talk about it fondly and they ask all the time when it will be. Does Jesus come back tomorrow? Because their paradigm is that when Jesus comes back, what happens is all the sad and broken things in the world are no more. They don't call it a tribulation. They don't call it eschaton or Armageddon. They call it, and I quote, when Jesus makes the world all better. The tender mercy of a God so gracious and beautiful that he would come to us in the manger is the very God whose tender mercy will renew all things. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.